Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship your name. As it has been decreed and declared in this place, you and you alone are worthy of our praise. Now, Lord, as you have so many times before, grant me grace to preach and teach to the end that your great name is glorified. Arrest the attention, God, of these, your hearers, that your word might find a place in the deep recesses of our minds and hearts. Help me to preach with clarity and continuity, with power and persuasion. And God, when this preaching moment is done, you and you alone will be glorified. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Good evening, First Baptist. Good evening. Good evening. I am so delighted to be here with you this evening. It's always a joy to uh, worship with the body of Christ, and it is especially exhilarating whenever I'm given the opportunity to be energized uh, in worship by the presence of young people. Amen. I want to thank God for my dear friend, RJ. Uh, we, as he stated, we go a long way back to the days of Beeson Divinity School there at Sanford University. I do count him as a man of God, a model of Christ-likeness, and I'm grateful to be able to say that he is my friend. Thank God for my wife and my son who sat in the back. I'm always made better by their presence. Turn with me, if you will, to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4. Permit me to read 16 verses for your hearing. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the, of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We ought to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to use as a title for my preaching this afternoon an urgent call for unity. An urgent call for unity. It is no secret that for the last past couple of weeks, the overriding, primary, constant story that has bombarded the television stations, that has been a constant presence in all social media sites is the debacle concerning Kanye West. You can remember, especially last week, perhaps all day, every day, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News even, Kanye, and his rants and the crisis surrounding him bombarded us to no end. Kanye West allegedly made some anti-Semitic remarks and due to his folly, all of his sponsors cut ties with him. One by one, Every day it was a different sponsor. Gap, then Foot Locker, then Balenciaga, then the shoe dropped Adidas, all cut ties with Kanye West. But then it got comical. The memes started to roll in and people started to 
uh, get in on the fun. And so you would see a meme that would say something like, Curtis Jackson cuts ties with 50 cents. Jada cuts ties with Kiss. I even saw one that says, yay, cut ties with Kanye. <laughs> and it was all fun. But at the same time, it reminds us that we live in a world where unity is desperately needed because we are cutting ties with one another. We live in a society where before the Kanye West folly hit your social media outlets, various groups and entities and even communities were cutting ties with one another. Long before Kanye, Democrats had cut ties with Republicans. Long before last week's constant news cycles, blacks and whites have cut ties with one another. Men have cut ties with women. The rich have cut ties with the poor. Sadly, we live in a society where we are canceling one another and cutting ties. That's precisely what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 4, two groups, Gentiles and Jews, have cut ties with one another. It is Paul's responsibility as all, to do all he can as a prophet, as an ambassador, as an apostle to the Gentiles to bring some sense of unity and reconciliation because he spelled, the way he spells it out, that's the way it ought to be. Paul bottles up and he wraps up his urgent plea for unity in the fourth chapter of Ephesians where there is the theology of ecclesiology. Paul really reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 that the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, calls for unity. There cannot be a divided church. There cannot be one church for Jews and another for Gentiles. No, this ecclesiology that Paul is arguing for uh, prior to Ephesians chapter 4 is a robust the uh, ecclesiology that where he says Jesus came to preach peace to those who were far off as well as those who are near. There's also a doctrine of anthropology here because Paul clearly states directly and indirectly that whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, all of us are fallen in need of redemption and that can only happen in Christ. This anthropology is theological because Paul tells us that once we are in Christ, we who were afar off, we have been made partakers of the commonwealth of Israel. We who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. This anthropology that Paul speaks about is an anthropology that transcends our tribal loyalties. 
It transcends, although it does not call you to deny, but it also transcend, po transcends political, party, ethnic persuasions, and social silos. But then there's an intra-Trinitarian presence here as well. Paul is really saying the task of unity is also a task of the triune God because the triune God really models unity at the highest level, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Paul says there's one Father of all, one Lord, one baptism, and we are all baptized into that body by the Spirit of God, a inter-Trinitarian presence. But there's also social ethics here because these are two groups. Two distinct factions, Jews and Gentiles, with di different traditions, different values, different likes, different dislikes. They are different in every way. Two ethnic groups who perhaps don't need and don't like one another. We see a lot of that in our world today. Schisms and isms. Schisms on every hand. Wherever you look, their schism is not just Auburn and Alabama. It's, as I've already said, Republicans and Democrats, it's Baptists and Methodists, it's charismatics, charismatics and non-denominational, it's whites and blacks. There are schisms all over our, schisms even in the church. But then the isms, racism, sexism, classism, all of these schisms and isms is the reason why Paul's urgent call for unity is a word for us today on the first day of November. Paul's urgent call for unity is a call that challenges us to move beyond the rhetoric. Here in this chapter, Paul is not, not only uses the word, ur, he, he not only uses words like urge uh, and, and, and uh, um, uh, uh, that, that an eagerness, but Paul uses this word walk. This word walk, paratakleo, this word walk, uh, the eight times that it's used in Ephesians and 47 of the 49 times it's used in the New Testament, it is metaphorical for behavior. It is lifestyle. It is a metaphor for walk. So what Paul is really saying here that we have to move beyond rhetoric because when we look at the letter to the church at Ephesus, for three chapters, Paul has issued a profound theological argument. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he is robust in orthodoxy. Paul lays out for three chapters theory, theological, the finest of theology is found in Paul's ecclesiology for three chapters. 
But then in chapter 4, he moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. That is right belief, right teaching to right living and right practice. In other words, we must move beyond the rhetoric if we are going to see unity in our world. If our faith does not transcend our churches, the four walls of our churches, if our faith does not transcend our small group, if your faith does not ex ex transcend or extend beyond the exhilaration, exhilarating realities of worship, it is no good for unity. We must move beyond rhetoric. And for about three decades in our country, in our church, we've done a lot of talk about unity. We've had pulpit swaps and prayer meetings and national days of prayer. We have conferenced ourselves to death about unity. But we have to move beyond the rhetoric. We have to move from talking about it to walking it out. And moving beyond the rhetoric suggests that your faith and my faith and what Paul is really teaching us here, your faith and my faith has social ramifications. It was the faith. I know sometimes we look at the amendments in our Constitution. I know that we look at legislation. But when you really pull back the layers, it was the faith of the mill workers, of the Jewish rabbis and the black deacon and the homemaker and the black man and the white woman. It was the faith of the body of Christ, of the believers that broke the system of segregation in Birmingham those 380 days from December 5th, 1955 to December 20th, 1956 during the Montgomery bus boycott. It was a faith that bore out social ramifications. It was the faith of the confessing church that said to Hitler, we will not capitulate to your state-sponsored garbage. It was the faith not too long ago, the faith of Alabama, the faith of the church that said to uh, the nation that we want to move towards not pro-life, but a whole life reality. We want to see life from the womb to the tomb. In other words, our faith has social ramifications. And for Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, what he is teaching here is not some pie in the sky, spiritual uh, uh, or existential, ontological sort of relationships where they will be brothers and sisters in the spirit. No, Paul is teaching that if we are going to see unity our faith has social ramifications and it will disturb our social realities. You see, our faith will not only change our hearts, but it also ought to also change our homes. Our faith not only ought to change uh, the, the, uh, the, the sin that's in our 
hearts, but it also ought to make sure that there are roads and, and that there are hospitals in rural communities. Our faith ought to have a bearing on the social realities of our lives. But our faith, when we move beyond the rhetoric, not only do we embrace a faith that has social ramifications, but we also embrace a faith that has communal implications. Unity. Unity. It's what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called building the beloved community. This building of a co beloved community, uh, Dr. King was calling us to, and his voice still reverberates and resounds throughout history. It is a faith where we realize that whether we know it or not, we need one another. Amen. Hear his words. He says, all of life is interrelated. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. I cannot be who I ought to be until you are who you ought to be, and you cannot be who you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. This is what he calls the interrelatedness of life. In other words, a faith that moves beyond Rhetoric has social ramifications and communal implications. It really builds community. But then there are pers there's a personal application. Paul is not only speaking to the group here, but he says each one of us, we have to walk out our individual calling. Listen to what he says. In humility... In gentleness, in patience, bearing with one another in love. Brian Chappell has written a book entitled Christ-Centered Preaching. Preaching. Now, the book is not just good for preachers. It's good for lay people, too. Because the book, he talks about all preaching should give the hearer some application. It's really not preaching, not effective preaching, if it does not call the listener to do something. But then he moves from application. He said what application really is, is it, it moves from general application to a specific application. So for instance, so we ought not in the sermon only tell people you ought to love one another. We ought to say that, but we also want to get a little bit more specific. You ought not to only to love one another, but we ought to tell people who they must love. You ought to love your neighbor. What neighbor? You ought to love your Muslim neighbor, your Democratic neighbor, your Republican neighbor, your NRA right-wing neighbor. You ought to love your neighbor, your neighbor who is different from you. That is being specific. A faith that moves beyond rhetoric has social implications, communal uh, so, social ramifications, communal implications, and personal application. But guess what? We must not only 
move beyond the rhetoric, but we must move toward reconciliation. Now, so much has been said about reconciliation, racial reconciliation, and things of that nature, but Paul really gets real about reconciliation because this chapter is about unity, thus reconciliation. But Paul says now, it won't happen overnight. You, you, you won't be able to do it by reading a book. You won't be able to do it by uh, having a small group for six weeks. He, he says, if you're really going to see unity by moving toward reconciliation, listen, it's going to take patience. You're going to have to bear with one another. And you're going to have to be eager to maintain this unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. In other words, he's saying you're going to have to be in it for the long haul. It won't be it won't happen overnight. And I believe one of the reasons we don't see racial reconciliation more effectively than we do, because to be honest, some of us don't need it. We really don't have to have it. It does not, it's not going to change our world. It's not going to keep us from getting the scholarship or the job. Why do we have to pause our life to try to understand and know? But Paul models that, doesn't he? He says, listen to what he says in verse 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. But he says the same thing in chapter 3. He calls himself, himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But listen to why. On behalf of you Gentiles, we do understand that this letter was written while Paul is in a Roman jail. So in other words, when you really break it down, Paul is saying, I've committed my life for this cause of unity in the body of Christ. I became a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm in it to win it. I am ten toes down. I am both feet on the ground. I am all in. And until we have that prisoner-like attitude of Christ that Paul is modeling, we won't see the reconciliation that God calls us to. Moving toward reconciliation, I've just written a book entitled Sacred Anthropology, Prophetic Radicalism for Pulpit and Pew. Nestled within the pages of that publication, I, I outline what preachers and those in the pew must do to see unity, to combat injustice, to rid ourselves from the isms, from the racism, the classism, from the sexism. I, I've, I've, I've outlined it, and I've, I've put it in what I call five R's. Number one, if we're going to see a sacred anthropology, we need, to, we need to recognize our presuppositions and biases. I believe that this is not the first time that we see warring factions in the New Testament. And in fact, they are divided because there are some presuppositions, some biases 
from pre some prejudice that Jews have against Gentiles and Gentiles have against Jews. We see that in the gospel with the Samaritan woman, right? She, she, Jesus, she even tells Jesus now, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans and Samaritans don't have anything to do with Jews because of the stereotype that exists. And listen to this, if you are here today and if you think you don't have presuppositions, you are fooling yourself. One of the ways that we move toward reconciliation Reconciliation is to not ignore them, but to recognize them. But then the second R is respecting the other. Respecting the other, respecting the other. Will Willimon has written a book entitled The Fear of the Other. And he says in this book, he says, uh, when, when the Lord tells us to love your neighbor as yourself, he said he could mean love your neighbor as if your neighbor was like you. No, he's meaning love the different neighbor, love the gay neighbor, love the Republican neighbor. You don't have to condone or, con or capitulate, but listen, love your neighbor. Respect is not this sort of sentimental warm feeling, but loving your neighbor means loving people in spite of unconditionally the way Christ loved each, one, each and every one of us. But then the third R is resisting the myths. Resisting the myths. As African Americans in this country, there have been so many myths Myths, the curse of Ham myth, this concocted and twisted interpretation of Genesis 9 that concluded or that whereby uh, notable, respected naturalists and theologians and Confederate preachers interpreted Genesis 9 by condoning slavery, by saying that Africans are the descendants of Canaan and Ham and since Noah cursed Canaan and Ham and uh, assign the descendants of Ham to perpetual servitude and since uh, black people, Africans are the descendants, well that simply means that Africans are meant to be divinely assigned to slavery. Myths. We are called to resist the myths. Maybe you remember this. In 2008, during the presidential debates, John McCain, the late great senator from Arizona, uh, Senator Barack Obama, who would go on to uh, become the first African-American African president of our country. They were uh, each on the campaign trail. They were, uh, had their various audiences. But John McCain was in a, uh, uh, a town hall, and you can look this up on YouTube, and he's in this town hall, and he's answering questions, and he's fielding questions, and a lady grabs the mic, and she said, I'm afraid of an Obama presidency. She said, because he's, he's not a citizen. 
and he's a Muslim, and he's a terrorist. And John McCain politely took the mic and he said, no, ma'am, that's not true. He happens to be a good man, a family man of whom I happen to have disagreements. He could have take, took that moment and allowed that lie to spread and allowed that myth to fester, but in a moment of integrity, he resisted the myth about the other. We must fourthly become resources. Resources. Maybe you business majors know something about cultural intelligence akin to IQ and emotional intelligence Cultural intelligence, CQ, is, is this way that uh, the business world has said that if we're going to uh, expand our brand, expand our business to uh, an international presence, we must know something about the culture of the people who by, whose country we are taking our business. So cultural intelligence it, uh, became a way that the business world and those uh, who uh, are on Wall Street and those who wanted to take their business and brand beyond the continental United States, they wanted, and if they, they knew if they wanted their business to flourish, they were going to have to know something about the other culture. Cultural intelligence has four components. There's CQ knowledge. How much do we know about other cultures? Then there's CQ drive. How much do you want to know? How motivated are you to read a book, to start a conversation, to scratch your head and wrestle with the, the, the values and the traditions and the experiences? CQ drive. Then there's CQ strategy. If you're really serious about unity and reconciliation, it's got to be intentional. We have to have a strategy. How are we going to attract more minorities to the First Baptist uh, College worship? That's got to be a strategy. And then following strategy, there's CQ action. Being a resource. But then fifthly, that fifth R that I write about in Sacred Anthropology is responding with other believers to be divine agents of interruption. We must interrupt the norms of racism, the norms of injustice, and that's what Paul is calling this church to do. Don't just sit back and think reconciliation is going to happen. You have to be intentional about it. He says, I urge you. You have to be eager. But guess what? In your eagerness, and, and even though I'm urging you, it's not going to happen overnight. So maintain it. Keep it. Don't just be seasonal. Don't just be faddish. Don't just do it during Black History Month and do it during the National Day of Prayer. But no, you're going to have to hold it in the ground. Maintain the unity. But then, I bid you farewell with this. 
this urgent call for unity is a call for us to move into meaningful relationships. In my spare time, I love to catch a good Netflix series or movie. But it's, it's how I unwind. It's how I take my mind off of theology and church and preaching and I sit and I watch a good Netflix series. I just started a uh, limited series called From Scratch. Just started it the other night. Uh, it's uh, uh, typically not my kind of movie. It's what some guys may call a chick flick. It's a love story. But it has some theological nuances and overtures in the movie. Spoiler alert. From scratch centers a young Texan by the name of Amy Walker. Amy is trying to find her way. She, she is passionate about art. She wants to be an artist. But her father, who is a attorney, he wants Amy to follow in his footsteps. Amy tries to find herself, so she takes a trip to Italy. She wants to uh, uh, view uh, original uh, Michelangelo paintings. She wants to see the best of Italian art. But while she's there, she falls in love with a Sicilian chef named Lino. Lino and Amy have a lot in common because Lino's father is a hard, tough, demanding, stubborn, proud, unyielding Sicilian. He also wants, wanted Lino to follow in his footsteps to be a farmer. Lino is in Italy cooking and Amy is there uh, uh, discovering art and they fall in love with one another. Uh, but Lino's father is upset. He disowns his son. Amy and Lino move to the United States. They move first to Texas. Then they decide to get married. They move to California. They, they're going to have the wedding back in Italy where they first met. Lino's father is so distraught, he's so angry, that not only will he not come to the service, the wedding, but he prevents his wife and his daughter from attending his only son's wedding. It breaks Lino's heart. It crushes him. It tears him to pieces. He has no family members at the wedding. They move back to California trying to find their way. And just when things are about to break for them, Lino gets a break by opening his very own restaurant. Amy has got a high-profile job at a very visible art gallery. The, the unbelievable happened. Lino is diagnosed with a very rare but very progressive form of cancer. It's enough to touch his father's heart at least 
to make him and his wife make the trek to California to see about their son. But when they get to California, the two families, Amos Texan family and Leno Sicilian family, they crash and at points and times tempers are flaring and nobody is getting along. You have these two different uh, cultures, an African-American family from Texas and a Sicilian family from the underclass of uh, Sicily. They are warring. They don't like each other's food. They don't understand each other's language. They are getting on each other's nerves. But Amy, Amy is the level-headed one. Amy is the one who, in one poignant scene, she tells Lino's very demanding father, you come outside. Amy gives Lino's father the truth. Paul says, speak the truth in love. We can share some hard truths with one another about the past, about the past of our country. Nobody wants to be in the dark. But nobody wants to be talked to angrily. Amy saves the day. Because of Amy, she brings the families together. And what we learned, there are four things that we learned from that film. And I'll stop there because I won't spoil it for you anymore. Because I have two more episodes to watch myself. <laughs> but what we learned, number one, is reconciliation in unity is often painful. Those months that Lino's family and Amy's family spent together was not easy. Paul is saying to us, unity won't be easy. You're going to have to bear with one another. We also learn from that film a theological message from that film that sometimes every now and then if we're going to see true lasting unity it's going to take some of us stepping out of our comfort zone willing as Jesus would say to deny ourselves and take up our cross but then, thirdly, we learn that every now and then it only takes one. Amy was the one. And I say to you today that Paul talks about how the Spirit of God has given to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. All it takes is one, one of you tonight, one person, to bring unity to your family, to be, bring unity to your sorority, to bring unity to the, the campus of the University of Alabama, to bring unity to your church. All it takes is one person to bring racial unity, political unity, economic unity. All it takes is one. But even though it takes one of us, we cannot do it without the one.
The one is Christ. The one is Christ who tore down and destroyed that dividing wall of hostility in his flesh on the cross. We cannot do it in our own strength with our own intellectual ingenuity. We're going to have to do it in the one who died, was buried, and rose again. This is an urgent call. For unity. Whenever I'm watching Netflix, after a while, after I doze off, there will be a message that comes on the screen. <laughs> Y'all know it, huh? Amen. That message says, <laughs> Are you still watching? It's so befitting that we would be talking about unity tonight on this campus. I asked RJ uh, upon coming here, do you come here every Tuesday night? And he said, no, not every Tuesday night. But it's just like God, only God would have it, that we come to a campus where the focus, the sermon is about unity. And we are talking about unity on the campus where there was so much division, so much, so many schisms, so much fracture, so much division, but here we are talking about unity. Now it's important that as we watch the history of the University of Alabama, we watch Arthurine Lucy, Vivian Malone Jones, so many others, Sylvester Croom, and we watch all the, 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 the people, both black and white and other, that sacrificed to bring unity to this campus. We're watching, but it's important that we don't fall asleep. And the question is, are you still watching? Now, you know as well as I do, if you, if, when that message comes up on the screen, if you're going to go to the next episode, it requires the watcher to do something. It usually requires me to get up out of my seat, to grab my remote, and to say, yes, I'm still watching. I challenge you tonight, in your watching, to get up and do something because the call for unity is urgent. God bless you.